0: Amen. You can be seated. Hey, good morning. My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. There is a connect card under your chair. If you would take a second, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to connect with you. Uh, take you to coffee. Take you to lunch. See how we could get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, I'm not preaching this morning. Uh, we are a part of a like a church planning collaborative, the Redeemer Network. We give away 4% of our budget every year to train and equip and resource other church plants. And so I think one of the cool things about where we're at as a church is the ability and just the availability to share uh, the pulpit with guys that are going to plant, guys that are already in the planning process, or like future staff guys. And so this morning, uh, we're going to hear from Matt Chamness, not Matt Chandler, who uh, some people were excited that uh, Matt Chan, something was coming. Um, anyways, Matt Chamnus is here, and he's going with New Life, no, New City Church in Austin. If you remember a few months back, Justin Smith preached for us, and Matt is going as a, as a staff guy with him. So I'm going to pray for him, and then I'm going to read the text and turn it over to my brother Matt. So we're in Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. My son Levi's back there. He will hook you up. Uh, And if you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, It was now two days before the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Thank you for the opportunity to partner with, resource, and train, and equip other church plants to take the gospel to our region and our state and beyond. Lord, I just ask that you would Give Matt confidence in the words you've placed on his heart, Lord, that you would speak through him, that you would use him. Lord, we pray for New City Church in Austin that uh, it would get roots and get established, Lord, and it would thrive and reach many for the gospel, for the kingdom. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You're up, brother.
1: All right. Thanks, Tanner. Well, good morning, Redeemer. My name, um, like Tanner said, is Matt. Um, I am originally from Kingwood, Texas, which is a small suburb uh, northeast of Houston. And for the past five and a half years, I have been in Lubbock, was a student at Texas Tech. Recckham. We have any Red Raiders in here? Yeah, a couple. Cool. Uh, so graduated from Tech in 2020, and for the last two years, um, I have been doing a ministry residency at Redeemer Church in Lubbock doing college ministry. Um, And kind of while I was uh, doing that residency, being equipped um, as a minister and things like that, um, uh, Redeemer, as Tanner mentioned, has a culture of um, planting churches, wants to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. And so I just was around that culture a lot, was around people who were um, fired up about it and had a heart for it. And the Lord started to kind of give me a heart for it. And as uh, my wife and I started to talk about what it could look like for us to participate in that. Um, we kind of came to this conclusion that, okay, we're at a time in our lives where um, we're, we're very mobile. Um, there's nothing necessarily uh, tying us down to where we are, and so um, it was kind of a natural uh, transition whenever the Smith family, Justin, who preached here a couple months ago, um, they moved to Lubbock. Uh, we started to um, get close with them, um, and then, yeah, that's kind of how that came together. I am I'm going to be the college ministry director um, on that staff team, planting New City in Austin um, in January, but we're actually moving in about three weeks um, to Austin, so we're in our last uh, couple of weeks in Lubbock. Um, but yeah, uh, basically how this came together, Justin preached here. Um, uh, he mentioned that he had a guy uh, that he uh, wanted to get some reps, and Tanner said, because Tanner had met me before, um, he said, is that the, uh, that's the Paulie D looking guy, right? Um, And Justin laughed, so yeah, so the Poly D guys here. um, This is actually my first time getting to preach, so I'm super thankful for this opportunity. Um, That also gives you an explanation for if you leave here today and you're like, what the heck did I just hear? There you go. So, um, let's kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, So I know you guys have been in this uh, series and Mark for a while now, um, but if you were to just kind of sit down and read through Mark in one sitting, Um, You'll notice, in comparison to the other Gospels, uh, it's a pretty quick hitter. He flies through a lot. Um, There's no birth story, no upbringing, uh, none of that. By verse 15 of chapter 1, we're already jumping uh, into his ministry. Uh, So because of this, uh, Mark's Gospel was actually neglected uh, for a a long time um, by the early church. Augustine, who was an incredibly influential uh, theologian, considered it to just kind of be an abbreviation of Matthew and Luke, just kind of lacking some of the details that those had. Um, Other church fathers called Mark a sloppy and unfocused writer. Um, Later, though, there was a resurgence um, in the study of Mark, and now it's one of the most intensely studied Gospels that we have. Um, And part of the reason for that is, is because of some of the literary devices that Mark uses to reveal his purpose for writing to the reader. Um, And I think this passage we are looking at today is going to be a really cool example of that. So Mark is going to set up um, a contrast um, between two characters in the story um, that is meant to kind of challenge us to think about our attitudes and our heart toward Jesus. Um, So at this point in the story, uh, where we are in Mark, things are really starting to pick up. For the first eight or so chapters of the book, we get a look into Jesus' public ministry and many of the uh, miraculous works that he did. Um, And Mark's goal here uh, is to convince the reader that this is indeed the Messiah. Um, We get a huge plot twist uh, about halfway through Mark in chapter 8 that sets the stage for everything that happens next. And I know many of us in here are familiar um, with the gospel, but I want us to try our best uh, to remove our 21st century Christian lenses for a second and place ourselves in the shoes um, of Jesus' disciples. Jews who were very familiar with their Hebrew Bibles and were fully expecting this Messiah figure um, to be one who came to conquer this oppressive Roman Empire, um, to trample all of Israel's enemies under his feet, and ultimately to establish his reign on earth. Um, When Jesus asked them, uh, his disciples, who they say he is in chapter 8, Peter, after a lot of doubt and questioning, finally responds, you are the Christ. And here is the big twist. Uh, Jesus affirms what Peter says, but tells them that he actually came not to overthrow their enemies, but to die at their hand, um, to be rejected and persecuted by their own religious leaders, and three days after his death, walk out of the tomb. Mark even goes out of his way to write that Jesus said these things to them plainly, clear as day, and then Peter rebukes him. Peter declared Jesus the Messiah, um, but had a very different idea of what that meant in his head. Despite all that Jesus had done and revealed about himself, his disciples are still not getting it. It's a crazy claim to them. And so we move forward, and now Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Um, He's publicly staked his claim as the Messiah, the Son of God, this Savior figure that Israel has been waiting for for so long now. Um, He's been challenging the religious leaders. um, And you guys are just coming off of this long discourse Um, where Jesus foretells of all of these things that are um, yet to take place, some near and some far, um, some pretty scary things. Um, And this discourse uh, serves as both a warning and a reason for hope for his disciples as he enters his last day on earth. Um, And so where we are picking up in chapter 14 today, we are rapidly approaching um, the climax of the gospel story. So we're gonna pick up in verses one and two. It says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark uh, is starting to move us into the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry, um, which is the plot to arrest and kill him by the religious leaders. And this idea started to come together just days before the Passover feast. Um, So to just kind of give you an idea of what's going on here, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a unique time of celebration for the Jews, commemorating God, delivering them out of slavery uh, from the hand of the Egyptians. This was a huge deal. It was the most important week of the year on the Jewish calendar, and Jews from around the Roman world traveled to Jerusalem uh, to take part. Um, they would have to make temporary infrastructure adjustments um, t- just to make it easier for people to get in and out of the city. Um, and people would set up tents all around the city just outside its walls. Um, so this is crazy. This is like, in modern terms, this is like a Times Square in New Year's on New Year's Eve type situation. Um, scholars estimated that population-wise the city swelled um, to up to six times its normal size during this time of year. Um, so you can begin to imagine how um, during a time like this that was celebratory and probably a little bit chaotic, um, how a guy going around claiming to, be, to uh, be the Messiah and causing upheaval in the temple um, and then prophesying its destruction um, was making the religious leaders in Jerusalem start to sweat a little bit. They felt that Jesus was a direct threat um, to their power and authority. So they're trying to figure out how to dispose of this man, Um, without causing upheaval and utter chaos. And so just as we begin to picture this scene in Jerusalem um, and the plot to arrest Jesus begins to come together, Mark interestingly um, suddenly interrupts the story and transports us to another scene um, in a nearby village outside of Jerusalem. Um, So this is probably going to date me a little bit. It's probably not hard to tell by looking at me that I'm pretty young. Um, but I grew up a pretty big Star Wars fan, and some of you will probably roll your eyes at this, but the prequel movies were kind of my movies, those are the ones I grew up with, so those are my favorites. Um, And specifically the third one, Revenge of the Sith, um, which without giving you a bunch of the details, um, if I spoil anything, I'm sorry, it's been out for 15 years, like, you're late. Um, So Anakin Skywalker, who's kind of the main character, this is where he makes his transition to become Darth Vader. And at the end of the movie, um, there's this climactic battle between him and Obi-Wan Kenobi, who was his old Padawan and kind of father-like figure. And so we have this really intense, climactic final battle between them. Um, And every couple seconds or so during that battle, it transitions over to this other fight that's going on between um, two other Jedi and Sith people, basically. And I remember as a kid, every time the scene switched over, to the other fight, just kind of like rolling my eyes a little bit and being like, can we get back to the main thing, please? Um, I don't care about this side fight. I want to see this main like climactic battle that we have been waiting for. And so it kind of feels like Mark is doing that to us a little bit here where we're starting the climax of the gospel story and there's suddenly a scene change. Um, But we'll find later that there is some real intention behind Mark doing that. Um, So now with this plot of the religious leaders in the back of our minds, uh, we enter into this new scene starting in verse three. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So now we're in Bethany. Um, We're right outside of Jerusalem, uh, presumably a little bit removed from um, the traffic and the hoopla of the Passover and uh, Jesus is in the home of a man named Simon. Um, Now, Simon would have been forbidden by Jewish law um, to host anyone in his home with leprosy, so he has likely been cured at this point. Um, It's even possible that Jesus himself healed him, but we don't know for sure. Regardless, um, they are together and uh, reclining at table, Um, which, think um, table that is basically on the ground. Um, Reclining meaning Jesus um, and Simon would have been Um, probably kind of laying on their sides, like elbow-propping them up sort of thing. That's what you're meant to think when it says reclining at table. Um, This is also why feet cleansing uh, was um, common practice before meals. You can imagine how gross it would be if they didn't do that. Um, And so Jesus and Simon are hanging out around this table in Simon's home, and a woman walks in, and she has with her um, a flask that is full of a sweet-smelling perfume, essentially, which we're told is very costly and she approaches Jesus. And she doesn't just open the flask, she breaks it and pours the ointment out over his head. It seems almost like there is a sense of urgency or importance um, with which the woman does this. And we don't know yet um, to what extent, uh, but we're told that this was a very valuable thing um, that this woman just gifted to Jesus. And you can imagine how awkward of a scene um, this might have been to witness for Simon, Um, laying probably just on the other side of the table watching. Jesus is now laying there looking like he just jumped in the pool and smells like Hollister. Uh, But we also learn... um, I'm glad that one landed. Um, Wasn't sure. But we also learn in the next few verses um, that there were others in the room. So starting in verse 4, there were some uh, in response to this act who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So we now have all of our characters present in this scene. And at this point, I think there is something um, important to note. Uh, This story is told in other Gospels. If you're familiar with it, you may know. And there are some notable details that Mark leaves out of his retelling, Uh, the main ones being the identity of the woman uh, and the identity of the others in the room. Um, Now Mark had a close relationship with Peter, which is uh, a huge reason um, why we accept Mark's gospel account, so it's likely that he knew the details of the story um, and left names out purposefully. And so while reading the accounts of this story together give us a fuller historical picture, Um, It's important to remember that each author had a different purpose or point to make for their account. And so I think what Mark wants his readers to do here um, is to see the contrast in in the attitudes toward Jesus of the woman and the others in the room um, without reading too much into their specific circumstances. And so the anonymity of the characters helps us to insert ourselves into their shoes and evaluate our attitudes and heart postures towards Jesus. And so the others in the room. They're watching this awkward moment, and they are seething. That, uh, that word indignantly in Greek uh, is meant to make us think not just annoyed, not just a little bit frustrated, but angry, seething um, in anger. Why would this woman waste that expensive ointment? We could have taken care of the poor with how much that's worth. That was their sentiment. For reference... Um, One denarii was a day's wage in this context, and we're told this ointment was worth 300 denarii. So for those of you in here who work um, on our uh, 365 day calendar, that's um, essentially 10 months of your salary or pay. When you think about it from that perspective, for a second, you're like, yeah, that seems like a uh, kind of financially irresponsible thing to do. Um, That should have been sold and given to the poor. And so the others in the room begin to scold the woman, and we don't know exactly what they're saying, but they are angry and upset about what this woman just did. Um, Caring for the poor was an important practice always, but especially during the Passover, so they viewed what this woman did as wasteful. Jesus responds, beginning in verse 6, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The others declare her act wasteful. Jesus declares it beautiful. The act of pouring the ointment over Jesus' head Um, calls to mind a couple of things. Um, This is how kings in the Old Testament, like Saul and David, were anointed in the Old Testament to signify that they were God's chosen. It was also common practice to anoint the dead before they were buried, which uh, Jesus alludes to here and will happen to him literally uh, later. So kings and dead. This one act by the woman, um, in the double meaning that it has, emphasizes Mark's point throughout his gospel. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the true King of Israel, but he came not to be served, but to serve, and ultimately to die. He came not to exalt himself, but to humble himself, and to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is not telling um, the others that are in the room that they should not give to the poor, um, they likely had Deuteronomy 15:11 come to mind, a command in Old Testament law that says, for there uh, will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus actually affirms what Deuteronomy says right there. He says, the poor aren't going anywhere. They will continue to be here after I'm gone and you can provide for their needs all that you want. But he reemphasizes um, that this is a unique time where he is quickly approaching his crucifixion. At this point in Mark, Jesus um, has foretold his death multiple times. And most people, particularly Jews, um, and more specifically his disciples, um, are still not getting it. Peter's response to Jesus in Mark 8, um, where he affirms that he is the Messiah and then rebukes him as soon as Jesus tells him what that means, um, is just representative of the disciples' attitudes up to this point. Um, But this woman seems to get it. She seems to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. And to her, the only fitting response is to give all that she has to Jesus in love and devotion. Not only was this ointment worth a year's wages, but there weren't really many opportunities for women um, to work outside the home. So this was probably a gift given to her, maybe even um, a family heirloom that has been passed down for generations. This was obviously an incredibly valuable thing to her, and it might have been all that she had, and in response to understanding who Jesus was, she couldn't help but give him everything. What's crazy is that even if this woman gave Jesus everything that she had in this flask of ointment, um, in and of itself, this gift falls laughably short in light of what Jesus is about to do on her behalf. Um, I'm not a parent. I don't plan on you know being one super soon, but you know, God is funny sometimes. Um, But sometimes, you know, like a young kid uh, will do something for their parents, uh, like a pretty rough stick figure drawing of the family or something like that, and they bring it to you, and they're really excited to show it to you. And as a parent, you cherish those things. They mean so much to you, and it's not because the drawing is beautiful and artfully crafted. Um, It means so much to you because of the heart behind the act, the heart that communicates love and appreciation for the parent. Though this woman's act is extravagant. It's not the value of the ointment that makes it so. It's the love and devotion to Jesus that motivated it that makes it extravagant. Jesus declares it beautiful. He says that this woman has done what she could. She may have had nothing else to offer Jesus but this family heirloom, but she did um, what she was able to. Jesus even says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Elsewhere, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. While the others scoff and declare this act wasteful, Jesus declares it beautiful. And so that wraps up the scene in Simon's house, uh, where this woman performs this act of love and devotion for Jesus. Um, The others in the room scoff at it, and Jesus commends the woman's act as beautiful, preparing him before his death for burial. And now we return to the larger narrative, right? Um, The one that we were kind of left hanging on a thread earlier in Jerusalem where the religious leaders are plotting and conspiring against Jesus. And we were left on that cliffhanger, and now um, we kind of find out how that plan comes together. Starting verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. What a betrayal. One of Jesus' own, one of his inner circle whom he gave his life to and for. We know that Judas was kind of uh, the financially-minded guy among the disciples, and so he was charged with looking after uh, some of the money, but um, he was a thief. He stole from what they had. He was motivated by greed um, and never intended to give anything to the poor. Mark wants us to see a contrast here. Um, These 11 verses are likely not even chronologically ordered uh, because in John, the event in Simon's house takes place six days, Uh, six days before the Passover, four days before the chief priests and scribes begin their plotting to kill Jesus. So why place this story here? We have this story of extravagant love and devotion to Jesus sandwiched between one of evil and betrayal. Why interrupt the narrative to retell what took place in Simon's home? To contrast the love of the woman versus the hate of Judas... The sacrifice of the woman versus the greed of Judas. The devotion of the woman versus the denial of Judas. There are a couple of questions um, that I want us to consider today that I think Mark is leading us to ask um, to help us evaluate our own hearts and attitudes toward Jesus. Firstly, how are we holding back from him? Does our devotion to Jesus look like that of the woman? Are we so convinced of the gospel that Jesus lived without sin, took upon himself God's wrath on the cross in our place, and resurrected from the grave? Are we so convinced of that that the only sensible response for us is to give everything we have to Jesus? To live in devotion and humility and sacrifice. Are we gladly willing to give our time, money, energy, and talents for the sake of the gospel that has been given to us? Are we willing to forsake our vices, comforts, fears, and worldly wants? Like the woman, would we be willing to give up the things that are most important and valuable to us so that we and the people around us can know and experience the love of Jesus? Do we love Jesus that much? I don't know about you guys, but when I look at my life, I see a lot of the ways in which I hold back. I may not have uh, sold Jesus out to those seeking to kill him like Judas. I haven't done that, but at some point um, in every day, I abandon him in favor of something easier, something more comfortable, something that helps me uh, maintain the illusion of control that I love to have. Like the others in Simon's house, I internally question the actions and devotions of others. In choosing to love and trust and devote myself to other things, I, like Judas, abandoned Jesus. It is all of our betrayal that nailed Jesus to the cross. And this is what makes the gospel um, such a good news for us, um, that the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has come to renew um, and restore all things. Not as a conquering king this time, um, but as a suffering king. And he died for the very people who killed him. If this is your, your first time hearing that, um, or you have been visiting here for a while, and you're still trying to figure out where you are with the whole Jesus thing, I'm super thankful that you're here, that you get to be a guest alongside me today. Um, I pray that you would continue to reflect on that and continue to come and continue to be a part of this community. Um, For the rest of us, as we all continue to stumble, we continue to hold back from Jesus. Let's continue to run back to grace, and it is that very grace through the Holy Spirit that will transform us and give us hearts that when we remember who Jesus is and what he came to do, the only sensible response for us is to give him everything we have. It is by this love that the world around us will know that we are his. Let's pray.